joy of baptizing one of our own, the, uh, the joy of celebrating another year with a brother in Christ, the joy of wishing well some of our body that's moving on to a different town. These are all, some of these things are bittersweet and some of these things just fill our hearts with joy because of the common faith that we have in our Lord and our Savior, Jesus the Christ. Well, every year, uh, Hollywood makes about 600 movies. And they make about 10 billion in profit. And how much does the adult entertainment industry make? 13,000 films and close to 15 billion a year in profit. The adult entertainment industry makes more money than the Major League Baseball, NFL, and the NBA combined. This is according to the website medium.com. Now, years ago, uh, and well, it's funny to me as I, I tried to search for the original story, it was, I couldn't find it. Um, I just have it in my memory. It's been so scrubbed from our existence. But years ago, there was an effort made by some lawmakers because there's a problem. And I don't know, parents, if you've noted the same problem that I have, but uh, setting up in our homes an internet-safe environment is very difficult. Uh, you, you've almost got to have an IT degree right to do it effectively to, to because there is no such thing as an easy filter I mean you could turn on you could purchase a product and you could put it on and next thing you know the the critical websites that you need to get to for your work or whatever are now they're blocked as well and it, it's the whole it's a whole big thing so years ago some lawmakers got together and decided we want to help families uh, protect their kids from this stuff especially online and so we're going to propose a bill and the bill is going to say that um, if you have an adult entertainment website, that instead of filing your name as a .com or a .org or a .edu or a .net or whatever, all the different extensions, that they were going to say, if you've got an adult entertainment website, you have to file it as .xxx. Because if, if you've, or it really didn't matter, as long as it was, the extension was unique to that industry, then it's a snap for every parent, everybody who wants to not look at any of that material, every parent that wants to guard their kids from that material, everybody could just easily set up a filter, cheap, easy, done, and effective. Now, do you think that that law got any traction whatsoever? It did not. Because $15 billion in profit every year buys you a lot of things. It buys you political influence. It buys you lobbyists. It buys you the opportunity to make an argument and to promote that argument. Perhaps that argument, I don't remember, but perhaps that argument was, you're going to let the government violate your free speech? Now, this would have been zero violation of free speech because people would have access to whatever they want. They just have the option to easily filter the material from their homes. So it died. 
it's almost as if you could say that a working assumption would be that the adult entertainment industry wants our young people to get addicted to this stuff so that they have a whole batch of future customers. I know no one in the industry would ever say that, but it's a good working assumption that that is probably the case. What I'm about to share with you in Acts chapter 19 is a text that is so relevant to today that it feels like when I study it, it was written yesterday. So relevant to what's going on in our world, so helpful. And so the question that we're going to deal with today is what often motivates the resistance to Christianity? It's not what you think. What often motivates the resistance to Christianity? And uh, this, this uh, sermon breaks down into four points. We're in Acts chapter 19, verses 21 to 41. Acts chapter 19, verses 21 to 41. And we're just going to work our way through it. But the pr- first point is logistics, the logistics. Look at verses 21 and 22 of Acts 19. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go on to Jerusalem, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent, and having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself, himself stayed in Asia for a while. So here Paul is just kind of laying out his plans. But there's some interesting facets here. First of all, it says that he is resolved in the spirit. And in my ESV Bible, that word is capitalized, signaling to me, an English reader, that this, that this is probably the Holy Spirit in view. The Holy Spirit is guiding Paul. And the Holy Spirit has moved him to say that his travel plans in the future, he's in Ephesus, which is Asia. He's going to go into Macedonia and Achaia. That's where Corinth is at. And he'll go on to Jerusalem and then visit Rome. Now, the word logistics uh, just means uh, of it pertaining to logic. That's all it means. Logistics are logical. They, they are pertaining to logic. I'm saying this now because uh, in a little while, we're going to see a contrast to this, and I'll, I'll circle back to it. But Paul has got definite plans laid out. We have in our congregation at least one person who was in the military who uh, worked in logistics. It doesn't make any sense, in other words, it doesn't make any sense to put troops out somewhere out on the field many miles away and not to think about logically, hey, they're going to need water. They're going to need food. They're going to need fuel and a whole host of other things, ammunition, uh, other resources they're going to need. And so before we send our troops out into the field, it makes logical sense for us to think through how we're going to supply them with what they what they need. Uh, That's true in the military. It's true in business. Uh, We have to consider logistics. Paul's talking about logistics. And that makes sense because God is a God of order, right? He's not a a God of confusion, as 1 Corinthians 14.33 says. Then later on in that same chapter, pertaining to the church, he says all things must be, should be done decently and in order. All things should be done decently and in order. A few weeks ago, we had an information meeting to talk about our budget. Uh, Jelaine Van Gordon, Brad Harris, the Finance Committee, the elders all got together, uh, well, at different times, uh, looked it over, approved it, submitted it for your approval at the business meeting. We opened it up for two weeks or so for you to ask questions, read it, think it over, pray about it. And then tonight, 
you'll come in. If you're a member, you'll sign in so that we make sure we have a quorum, and then we'll take the vote decently and in order. Now, uh, why must Paul see Rome? Now, I don't know the answer to this question, but Paul is being moved by the Holy Spirit that he must go to Rome. Acts chapter 1, verse 8 tells us that Jesus' mandate to his disciples that they were going to be his witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Paul has made a very strategic flight plan, so to speak, in his life by going to the major cities in the larger territories to, to share the gospel in the centers of thought, the synagogues, uh, the school of Tyrannus, for example, uh, to share the gospel in the, those schools of thought, and then the gospel, by virtue of people coming in and out from the countryside, is spreading. And so perhaps it's on Paul's mind that not only should he visit these capital cities and these centers of influence and share the gospel there, but perhaps he should go to the main capital, the capital of not just a country or a province, but the capital of the empire, which is Rome. Don't know. But that's one, one possible thought, as Paul thought, that God was going to eventually have him in Rome. And then also, just, to, just because it says it in the text, uh, his team is shrinking. He sends two of them, Timothy and Erastus, on to Macedonia, probably to go and spend some time in fellowship with the churches there and to see how they're doing so that when Paul comes, they can give a report. I don't know. But needless to say that his fellowship, so Acts 2.42 says that the early church devoted themselves to apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers, that his fellowship squad, if you want to use that word, is, is down a bit. And that's kind of important because he's now going to go into a difficult time. So this is just the logistics. The next thing that we see is the problem. Look at verses 23 to 27. About that time, okay, so about the time that uh, these guys left for Macedonia, uh, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. We'll, give, we'll come back to the way in a minute. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, remember that's the big temple in, in Ephesus, that's the big tourist attraction, if you will. People come to worship, they come to see one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, they come to worship there. Uh, for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. Here's the problem. Now, again, I'm so geeked out about this text, right, because there's some things going on, some dynamics going on here that are going on in our world today, and this is a super helpful 
super helpful to understand this has been going on forever. There's nothing new under the sun, as the writer of Ecclesiastes said. What is the problem? The true problem is this. As people turn to Christ and away from Artemis, Artemis is the Greek name, Diana is her Latin name, this is the Greek goddess Artemis or Diana, as people turn to Christ away from Artemis, there is a loss of revenue, meaning it's bad for business. It's not, we're not making any money anymore. We're not making the same money that we used to make. That is the true problem. Now, I just want to remind you, just as an aside here, uh, that God has told us all kinds of things. Jesus has told us all kinds of things about money. Money is a tool. Money in and of itself is not bad. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Luke 12, 15, he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, wanting things that are not your own, for one's life does not consist of the abundance of his possessions. Well, I would say that if you took this verse, this one verse, Luke 12, 15, and you compared it with the generations on the planet Earth today, at least in the Western world, we are not living this way. We take a very high view of possessions, and we, take a, we, we do tend to equate our level of happiness with the level of stuff that we possess. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think so. Nobody's throwing tomatoes yet. So take that into consideration. And then as 1 Timothy 6.10 says, Paul writes this, the love of money, right, is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pangs. Money is a useful tool and it is powerful. When we start making money, if we're not careful, we can begin to depend on money. In other words, We've talked often about how faith is knowledge, assent, and trust. You have to know uh, that the gospel, you have to, have to know the gospel of Jesus Christ. You have to believe that he did really die on the cross for your sins. And then you have to rest the weight of your life on what he has said in his word. That's what trust means. Knowledge, assent, and trust. Meaning when you have the option, right, to, to tell a lie or to tell the truth, you're, if you're trusting in Christ, you're resting the weight of your life on what he has said, you're going to be a person of truth. That's what trust means. But with money, if we're not careful, when we begin to accumulate some or even a lot of it, we begin to, if we're not careful, rest the weight of our lives on it. We trust it to save us when times get hard. We trust it to provide a way out of difficult circumstances and whatever. Also, if we're not careful, if we run a business or if, we have, uh, if we, we're selling a product or service, we are tempted oftentimes to start to lie or exaggerate to sell a product or service. Perhaps there's uh, someone in a decision-making position in the government who is blocking our way from expanding our business. And so we're tempted to pay a bribe or a kickback to someone or give to their their political campaign in order to further our business. That's called corruption. Sometimes we can, we can be tempted to cheat on our taxes with the idea that uh, the government 
is not going to use our money well anyway, so we should keep more of it. People with a lot of money have an advantage over people with not very much money. So for example, if, if someone comes forward and, and criticizes a product or service, calling it dangerous or perhaps not what it's advertised to be, the, 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 the entity with the larger amount of money can just sue the other person into oblivion. In other words, level lawsuits against them, force them to hire an attorney and defend themselves, and they can just continue, continue the motions and, and, and do court maneuvers to just drain them dry of all funds. That's, that's a war. Sometimes money can be used in a war of attrition. You get the idea. There's all kinds of tempting, uh, temptations when it comes to money. And if we're not careful, if we're depending on money instead of on the Lord, we can live our lives with a guilty conscience. Or worse yet, we can live our lives with a seared conscience, meaning we don't even, we're sinning and don't even realize that we're doing it anymore. Now, let's go back to Ephesus. Demetrius is saying to the guys, this is hurting our business. But I want you to pay careful attention of how the argument is going to morph. And by the time that the argument makes its public, its public, uh, it, its release into the public, by the time the argument makes its release into the public, it's completely different. Remember, the argument is, we're losing money here because people are turning away from Artemis and they're turning to Jesus Christ. So there is the true problem, but there's also the narrative that is presented. The narrative that is presented. And it morphs, and it morphs slowly. The first thing that's said is danger, risk. Now, uh, I don't want to pick on anybody today, but if you go home today and you turn on the news, and I don't care what channel it is, or if it's local news, if it's national news or international news, the, the nature of the news stories is often designed to scare you, is to say there's a danger of something bad happening. You get the idea. This is one of the biggest um, motivations that is used to try to control people. Look what it says. Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth, and you see and hear not only that in Ephesus, but, also in, but in almost all of Asia. That's amazing, because Paul is doing most of his work in Ephesus, but the word is getting out, and people are coming to Christ all over Asia. This Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that God's made with hands are not God. And there is danger. Not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, blah, blah, blah. There's danger. What's the danger? What's the true danger? The true danger is they're going to lose money. But look how it's being presented. The true danger, or the, the danger that's being presented is we may, we may lose public opinion. People might st uh, start to not think as highly of us as craftsmen anymore if we're doing the work uh, of building these Artemis shrines. You know, people traveling from the countryside, they come uh, from all over and they worship Diana, they worship Artemis in the temple, and then they go to the, the shops and they buy a little trinket, a little figurine of Diana, and they take it back to their homes and they put it up there as a shrine and they do this perhaps on some frequency. They go and they do these things. But it's being presented as, hey, 
Public opinion might swing here against us. People might not like us as tradesmen anymore. They might not use us anymore. The fear of man lays a snare, Proverbs 29, 25 says, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. The word of God also says in John 8, 32, Jesus says, and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. There is a process going on here. And by the time it, it gets released out into the public, the process will be complete and the true problem will be disguised behind a different argument. This never happens today in the world that we live in. Also, the danger is, is not, not only will they lose public opinion, but the, the argument Demetrius makes is that there's a danger that the temple of Artemis might lose its power and glory. There's a whole industry set up around the temple. It's one of, the, again, the seven wonders of the ancient world. And Artemis, the goddess that that temple is all about, may lose her power and glory. But remember what the Bible says in the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, 30, God says, you shall have no other gods before me, and that includes Artemis. God is a jealous God. And then in Psalm 115, and boy, this would be a good one in your Bible if you write or highlight or if you mark passages. This would be a really good one to mark because it's so very true. In the Psalms, we're reminded, Psalm 115, 4 to 8, about what these gods are. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk. They do not make a sound in their throat. Verse 8 is harrowing stuff. Those who make them will become, those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. Let me just say something about this passage. Again, a very important passage of Scripture. I would encourage you to mark it in your Bible, refer to it often. Following false gods, be that God Artemis, or be that God money, hear me now, read the words on the text on the screen, and hear me when I say, is dehumanizing. For example, in God's way that he's laid out for us, a man and a woman leave their father and mother, they become united, the two become one flesh, and as fruit of that relationship comes life most of the time in the form of children. And those children are raised and hopefully they're raised in the Lord and they are brought up to seek a mate and they leave their father and mother and be united to their spouse to become one flesh and out of the, the joy and the love of that relationship comes life. This is God's design. But whether it be in the worship of Artemis or the worship of the pop culture of today in 2023, sexual intimacy has been repurposed for individual pleasure. And when that individual pleasure results in a pregnancy, oftentimes the option is exercised to kill it, to kill that child. 
those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. I'll give you another example. Our God has asked us and instructed us that the way that we ought to live is that we ought to consider every other person as made in the image of God and that we are to let no corrupt word come out of our mouth, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion. That means that even when I come and, and I have a difficult conversation with them, if I'm doing it right, if my motives are pure, that my whole goal is to build that other person up, either nudge them closer to the Lord or if they're in the Lord, to nudge them closer to his path, his way, his word. And yet, how many people do we see out there, even people who call upon the name of Jesus, who use their words in a very dehumanizing way? Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. Enough said about that. I simply want to point out in this section of the sermon that this practice of saying... This is the real problem, but let's, we, can't, we can't talk about the real problem because that would be not popular, right? The real problem that these craftsmen are having is, we're losing money here. But that's not the argument that they're going to eventually reach. That practice of there being a truth and then there being a public-facing argument to that truth is all around us in our world today. Let me just go to the next section to see if I can illustrate this more fully which is the chaos. Let me read verses 28 to 34. When they heard this, okay, so Demetrius has gathered up all the craftsmen and he's made this argument that, you know, we're going to fall into disrepute and Artemis is going to lose her power and glory and there's danger in all this. You know, we're going to lose our profit. When this all happened, uh, when they heard this, they were all enraged, that's telling, and they were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. That's the, that's the slogan. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him, and even some of the Asiarchs, or the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent him sent to him and, tell, and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they cried out with one voice. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The chaos. So a few things about this. Number one is they're leading with emotion, right? Emotion is a good thing. It's a God-given thing. But uh, the way I understand my Bible is that we are supposed to uh, understand the facts, process those facts through our faith, our understanding of God according to his word, and then let our emotions flow from there. Now, these folks are hearing Demetrius' argument. There's danger. We're going to lose our trade. 
We're going to fall into disrepute. Public opinion is going to shift, and people will think less, or Artemis will no longer be thought of as, as high and glorified. They became enraged. A mob is forming. Proverbs 29.11, that wisdom book says that a fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. This is just raw emotion that's coming out. The next thing we see is that we see a slogan with a nebulous meaning. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. I mean, you, re- you hear those words and you just think, boy, I picture the yard sign now. You know, the, the, you get them printed up, you put them in your yard, and uh, we're going to just convince the whole town through those yard signs, right? Great is Artemis of the Ephesians, paid for and approved by the Trade Federation of Asia. Now, this is the public-facing slogan. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. But what's the real problem? Let's go back. What's the real problem? We're losing money here. How are these two connected? Barely, if at all. Can you, could you, as these trade tradesmen, could you go out into the public and say, we're losing money. Paul is preaching the gospel and people are turning away from Artemis. Support us. Could you say that? Would that get any traction in the public eye? You say, uh, no, suck it up and get a new trade. Come on. But what about, what about this? What about this? I'm, I'm, I've got on my political advisor hat now. I, here's, the, here's the slogan, guys. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Who'll buy into that? Everybody in Ephesus. Everybody in Ephesus will buy into that. That's the public-facing argument. You see what's happened here? There's a problem, and there's what is the public-facing argument, and they're really not related to the two. By the way, this happens all the time in our world. Uh, Whether you know this or not, I don't know, but abortion in the United States is a very lucrative business. But what is the public-facing argument? Conservatives are trying to control women's bodies. Can we stop and have a conversation about about what is leading us to kill our child? No, you are controlling women's bodies. You're you're taking away women's health care. Okay. The adult uh, entertainment industry is a very lucrative business. What's the public-facing argument? Free speech. Do you really think our founding fathers had that in mind when they wrote the Constitution? Do you really? The guys that said things like, this Constitution will only work for a moral people? You think they had, do you think that under the banner of free speech that they had in mind the adult movie industry, the adult entertainment industry? Weapons manufacturing is a lucrative business. What's the public-facing argument? Saddam Hussein has weapons of mass destruction. Vladimir Putin is a madman. Now listen, I'm not pretending to understand what's going on between Russia and Ukraine. I don't, I don't understand. But the reason that I don't understand is because we're not able to sit down with each other and have a reasonable conversation about what's really going on. People are suffering. And so, you know, collections have been made to send through the churches to help people and provide relief to those that are 
affected by this war. But for all we know, because we're not being told, things are, you know, things are happening that are someone's political ideation. Who knows? Vaccines are a lucrative, lucrative business. What's the public-facing argument about why we all have to get the vaccine? Safety. If you don't get the vaccine, we won't be safe. What's the truth? I don't know. We can't have that discussion. Elections are a lucrative business. What's the public-facing argument? January 6th was an attempt to overthrow the government. Actually, there are two public-facing arguments. January 6th was just a peaceful protest, and January 6th was an attempt to overthrow the government. Which one's right? I don't know, because we can't have the conversation about what really happened, because we just degrade into sloganeering. It's disgusting what's going on in this country and how we can't even have a public discourse with each other anymore because it all just degenerates into these stupid slogans. The FBI, CIA, and IRS, are they corrupt? Are they being leveraged per, for corrupt purposes? I don't know, but the public-facing argument is these agencies are perfectly nonpartisan. Guns are a lucrative business. What's the public-facing arguments to take them away? School shootings must be stopped. Indoctrinating kids and normalizing the LGBTQ lifestyle is lucrative business. What's the public-facing argument? Well, if you, if you say that, you're homophobic, transphobic, and you're forcing kids to take their own lives. Green energy is big business. What's the public-facing argument? Man-made climate change will kill us all. What's the reality? I don't know, because we can't have the conversation. Some folks believe that uh, what human beings are doing to the earth doesn't have any impact. I hardly believe that. Some people believe that man-made climate change will kill us all. I don't think that's right either. What's the truth? Can we have a conversation grounded in science and reason and not in sloganeering? No, we can't have that conversation. People who are paid big bucks to drive these little slogans square into our heads Political campaign slogans, what do they mean? Make America great again. It means different things to different people. Build back better, what's it mean? It means different things to different people. We live in a nuanced world where we're demanded to be on this team or this team. And if you try to be on this team, crush you. If you try to be on the reasonable team. We are called to reasonableness, brothers and sisters. We live in a nuanced world and we have to see the facts on the ground for what they are and not get swept up into one political party or another. We are not of the Republicans. We are not of the Democrats. We are of Christ. Yes, sometimes one party has policies that are more consistent with Christ than the other. And in those times, we flow with that. But you get the idea. Sometimes it's the other. We flow with that. We are the people of Christ. I got to hurry up. I, I, I talk too much. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Simple people just need more instruction. The Bible has the instruction that we need. It takes simple people and turns them into wise people. Wise people know how to live skillfully on this earth. And so how are we going to know the difference if we're not reading the word, studying the word, meditating upon the word? Bethel Bible Church, be people of the word. 
We see in this text, we see the use of force. They're dragging people into the theater, right? They're dragging people into the theater, and uh, it's not good. We also see, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just rush here, we see guilt by association. So Paul, they can't find, so they drag two of his traveling companions from Macedonia into the theater, and uh, they're going to do stuff to them because they are... Uh, associates of Paul. We see this all the time in our world today. If you've ever associated with this person that's now fallen out of favor, then you are acute, you're basically on par with that person just as much as that person has done evil. Uh, also, we see this Jewish man. He, he attempts to raise his hand and, and make a logical argument in front of the assembly, and the assembly says, oh, he's Jewish, Paul's Jewish, we're shutting that down. And for two hours, right, there's confusion, Ah, why did Paul sit out? Well, very quickly, why didn't Paul go into the theater? Well, he was advised to by some powerful people. The Asiarchs were the people in charge of the games in Asia. They were probably politically corrected. Some of them had become friends with Paul, and they said, it's not a good idea for you to go into the theater. A couple of reasons I came up with was there probably was no fruit in it. There's no people of peace, meaning he wasn't going to be able to have a reasonable conversation with anyone. And then there was no reasonableness going on in there. It was all, they were all people just operating on emotions. And so he set out, Philippians 4, 5 says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. So there's confusion, right? And there's confusion and there is, uh, a, this is an environment in the theater right now. There's a riot going on and logic and reasonableness are not allowed. Again, contrasting the first section where Paul was talking about, well, I'm wrapping up here in Asia, and I'm going to go to Macedonia and Achaia, and I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and then I'm going to, I got to see Rome. Paul's got a very logical path. There's no logic, and there's no reason even allowed in this theater where the riot is going on. There's a contrast there. Now, the part that really struck me was this part. Verse 34. When they recognized that he was a Jew, this is Alexander, when they recognized that he was a Jew for about two hours, that is not a small period of time. Two hours is longer than I preach. For, for two hours, they cried out with, with one voice, that slogan, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. It just so happened that as, as I was getting this message ready, I, um, I uh, accessed the news to see what was going on. And uh, this is a story that came up. I'm just going to play you the video clip here for a minute. Bear with me. One former prosecutor could be the most important witness in an upcoming trial against Circuit Attorney Kim Gardner. There is also an attempt to silence her. Fox Files investigator Chris Hayes shows you the surprising way this key witness has come forward. Chris? Mike, during arguments about what records the St. Louis Circuit Attorney should have to turn over, one of her former prosecutors spoke out in court essentially saying, I've got stuff to turn over. She immediately felt the heat. This is an incredibly, incredibly uncomfortably exposed position for me to be in, but somebody has to do it in order for all of you to have all of the information that I feel that you need. Natalia Ogurkowicz spoke out after Tuesday's four-plus-hour hearing as Gardner supporters often shouted over her. It's important that the media tell the whole story. 
That's the problem now with Jim Gordon. That's what I'm trying to do, and she's trying to stop me from doing it. Moments earlier, in court, the Attorney General's office complained about being stoned. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. This is the tool, right? This is the modern-day version of the theater in Ephesus, the, blo the bullhorn. Uh, I don't know what's going on in St. Louis. I don't know what's, what's going on with this circuit attorney. She needs to have her day in court and have all the evidence for her and against her laid out. And reasonable people need to look at the evidence. And if she's not guilty, she needs to be let off and allowed to do her job. And if she is guilty, then she needs to lose her job and be punished according to the law. And that's it. Later in this clip, I didn't want to show the whole thing because I'm already over time, but later on in this clip, there'll be several voices that are making an argument. And the argument goes like this. If the people voted her into office, the people should be able to vote her out of office. That's what's fair. What's the problem? The problem is that her office has been, has been suspected of corruption of using her office in a political way. What does that have, she's broken the law, potentially. What does that have to do with the people who voted her into office need to be the people who vote her out of office? You know what that has to do with anything? Nothing. It doesn't have anything to do with whether she broke the law or not. You see, this is the way of the world to take what actually is the problem and morph it into something that we can maybe buy into and that the public will buy and that we will fall victim to and get behind even though it doesn't bear any resemblance at all to the truth. Our God is a God of order and this world with all of its sinfulness is a God of chaos. And I just want to implore you, walk in the way of Jesus Christ. Tell the truth. When you sin against your neighbor, seek their forgiveness. Clear the air between. It's just such a, it's a, not only is it a better way to live, but it's a powerful testimony that we are different than the world. So that when people come to us and they want to be part of a fellowship where it's refreshing to be around each other and not like looking over your shoulder all the time, who's going to stab you in the back? It's refreshing to be in the congregation of the saints that people will know that there is a God because they will see our love for each other and they'll know that we are followers of Christ. All right, very quickly, the diffusion. I gotta read the text. I know it's a long, it's a long section, but we're almost done here. This is very quick. In the midst of all this chaos and everything, verse 35, when the town clerk then, and when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, so another official comes in and and is able to quiet everybody down. He said, men of Ephesus, who is there uh, who does not know that the city of, Ephes of the Ephesians is the temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? I don't know what that is. But there's superstition in, in uh, Ephesus about some sacred stone that fell from the sky. Seeing then, so he's saying, Artemis and everything is true. Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. It is therefore, if therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen will 
with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are pro-counsels. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we are really in danger, there's that word again, we are in danger of being charged with rioting today. Since there is no cause we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. So let me just kind of give some things that have happened here. The, the town clerk comes in and quiets everybody down and says, listen, use the system that we have. We have a system of courts and a way for you to press charges and all this kinds of stuff. If what you're saying is true, if, Ar if Artemis is the true goddess and we all think she is and all this kind of stuff, and you think that Paul's done wrong, then take him to court and level a charge and do it that way, do it in the courts. Because the system that we're part of, the Roman system, is backed up with force. Remember Romans 13.4 says that uh, the, the government does not bear the sword in vain. In other words, Rome, the Roman Empire, had a sword in its hand and could execute the people that are responsible for this riot. So whereas before, Demetrius and the craftsmen were in danger of losing money, the town clerk is saying, uh, you're all in danger of losing your lives here or jail time or whatever. You're in, you're in bigger danger than losing money. And it was, that, it was that appeal that he made that restored order. The, the system of government that they had restored order. Now that's not really the main purpose of the text, I don't think. I think the main purpose of the text is for us to see that oftentimes the main challenge against Christianity, the challenges that we face are challenges associated with sinful things that men want, oftentimes it's follow the money, that are wrapped in some sort of politically correct argument and broadcast out to the public to gain public support. So the answer to the question is this. As we see in Acts 19, the movement against Christianity is often motivated by the love of money, but sold to the public as something completely different. In other words, the Ephesian craftsmen would have us believe that Artemis is the God that they worship, when, in reality, the God that they worship is the almighty dollar. And that is oftentimes the case today. By way of possible application, a few things to think about. Uh, number one, do not allow yourself to be controlled by fear, right? Don't be allowed your, allow yourself to be controlled by fear. Fear, being controlled by fear will mean that you will bend to the argument of the day in order to say not what the word of God says, but what the word of men say. You'll be operating your life in the fear of man, and that is the most dangerous place to be, in my opinion. 1 John 4, he says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. You serve a God who loves you so much that he sent his only son to die on the cross for your sins. And that even in the trials that you face in life, we know from Romans that he designs those things for good to those who love him and are according, called according to his purpose, that the trials and the struggles that you're going through now are not at all. Let it never be entering your mind that those trials and, and struggles and sufferings that you're going through are designed to, by a God who hates you. These struggles are designed by a God who loves you and wants you 
to grow and change, become more like his son, Jesus Christ, and to prepare you for what's coming next in your world. Secondly, do not believe every explanation you hear in this life, right? There's a lot of people that are going to make a lot of arguments, but test everything against the word of God. 1 John 4, 1 through 3 says, Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. You get the idea. 1 John 4, 1 through 3. A couple more. When chaos and confusion erupt in this world, it's often best to stay away. It's often wise to stay away. Yes, every once in a while, you're going to find a social media person, a, a YouTuber, who's going to go into the heart of the conflict and try to make some provocative video. I've never seen a person do that and change anybody's mind. I've never seen it happen. I have seen people sit down over coffee and have logical, reasonable conversations and that person's mind get changed. And that is thanks to God. And then finally, in God's economy, love is greater than riches or ease. Why do I say that with such confidence? Is because for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God did not value the life of his son over our souls. He loved us so much that he sacrificed his son to pay the penalty for our sins so that our souls could be redeemed. Philippians 2 says that Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That is the God you serve if you are a follower of Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for this day. We've been so blessed today to see Jillian get baptized to see folks gathered to sing your praises and to have fellowship with one another. And we even got to time to open your word and to hear what you have to say about our lives. We want to be wise and discerning in this world that is filled with sin. Father, I pray that we would be people that are resolved to read your word, study it, understand it, and apply it so that we can discern these crazy arguments that are coming at us every day, these propaganda arguments. We can discern them from what's really going on. And we can understand what's going on through the pages of your word. Would you, won't you help us with this, Father? We ask in Jesus' name, amen.